0: I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it, and I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/yasmine again that is athleticgreens.com/yasmine y a s m e e n to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Richard Moss, an internationally respected leader in the field of inner transformation, subtle body-mind dynamics, and living a path of conscious relationships. In 1977, Richard was a practicing medical doctor when he experienced a spontaneous spiritual illumination that awakened him to the multi-dimensional nature of human consciousness. This realization profoundly transformed his understanding of the roots of emotional suffering and inspired him to explore the almost limitless human potential for growth and healing. And he's published over seven seminal books, including Inside Out Healing, Transforming Your Life Through the Power of Presence, which I highly recommend. And I'm so excited to welcome him to the show. We were introduced through a mutual friend, uh, Paula. So thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Huh. I'm
1: delighted. Thank you.
0: So Richard, uh, to kick it off, I'd love to understand what does presence mean to you? I feel like this is such an important piece of your work. And, uh, you know, we have an audience of over 70 countries, and so people have perhaps a very different perspective on, on what that even means. Um, I'd love for you to define it and also talk about how it's important in your own work.
1: Well, of course, in English, the word presence and the word present— are related. And so in the simplest way, presence is a quality of being present. And what that means is that your awareness, your consciousness, is not in the future with uh, planning and organizing. It's not in strategies to get a result, get anywhere it's not grounded in the past you're not using the past to explain to you who you are now why you're here what's happening you're really in this present moment in your body in the immediacy of what you hear and sense and feel so likewise you're not you're not in the conceptual ideas you have about yourself i often call them stories your your beliefs about yourselves often judgments and 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 therefore they're When you're really present, when there is real presence, you're not looking at another person through the lens of your past, the lens of your stories. You don't have stories and judgments about other people. You truly are in a deeply receptive, open, and very awake alert state. Now, one step more about presence, that's the state. And it takes a good deal of work. The reason people love things like skiing and rock climbing or extreme sports is because to do those things, there's a tremendous body memory that's developed and then you're functioning without thought. Surfing, which I know, and skiing, things like that from long ago, these are, rock climbing, those of some of the first places I experienced presence because there's tremendous focus. But a deep state of presence in the midst of daily life, that's the path.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, it's the times when we're really fully focused on whatever it is that we're doing. We're in a flow state. Those, for me at least, feel like the most incredible moments of life where I feel so connected to everything. And I, I'm not, you know, in what you call, we'll, we'll later talk about the, the past, the future, in this mandala of being. Um, which I'd mm-hmm. love for you to explain. So this concept of the mandala of being for me was so transformational and it's something that I actually use every day now. I'd love for you to describe this method uh, and how it works and like really get into the difference between, you know, the me, the you and, and define e- each of these terms.
1: Sure. A mandala is a, a term from the east. It, it refers to a particular form of sacred art, and in the in the most simple um, representations of this kind of art, there's a, a strong emphasis on a central area, and then generally mandalas are, are are circular almost always, and not only so. There's the strong emphasis on the central area, and then like with a circle, which has there there are then four, four, in a basic mandala, four other areas. It would be like if you looked at a clock and everything disappeared except noon, six o'clock, three o'clock, nine o'clock. Um, and so that's the visual image of it. Flowers are mandalas, certain kinds of flowers, like a sunflower. Um, and. And um, in the sunflower, the the center is very um, big, but in other kinds of flowers, like a daisy, the petals go out in every direction. So that's as if the mind is spontaneously being pulled into spaciousness, and at the same time it's being gathered toward that central point. And that's the essence of a mandala. You, when you look at it and you contemplate a mandala, you're, you're pulled into a focused but spacious state. That When you said about the flow states, yes, we're focused, but also we have to be completely spacious. We're, we're very ready and alert, but we're also in completely relaxed. It's astonishing. To, 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 th- there is a profound kind of relaxation in, in these deeper flow states. And so to teach yourself that in relational life, the mandala being basically is a model that I created that says when you're not in presence, when you're not in your body in the present moment, your mind is going to pull you away. And it's going to pull you in into four directions. If you're looking at the clock, it would pull you toward, let's say, nine o'clock. And over at nine o'clock and opposite at three o'clock, I, I see... This is the me position and the you position. It's it's a simpler way of expressing what philosophy calls subject-object consciousness. And just momentarily, to explain what that is, everyone who has been around babies and children know that they they have consciousness, but it has no structure. They're not in time. They don't have concepts of themselves or others. That's why they pay such close attention to faces and objects because when an object starts to to be interesting to them and, and the mommy takes it away or the daddy or and the child still knows that it's interested in where it went, so the object is getting more stable. Gradually, because your parents have subject-object consciousness, me, you, that they live in, they they are constantly bringing a baby toward that so that by three, four, five, the baby's talking very well, by eight or nine years old, all of us becomes... A self system, a structure called me, and from that point on, we don't live in presence, except in rare moments of you know, flow, like we described, or in the deeper the deeper qualities of meditation, the deeper states. Um, so my mandala basically says, if you find yourself thinking about yourself, judging yourself, telling yourself stories about yourself, that's one way you've been pulled away from who you really are. Come back. To come back to your breath, come back to this moment, start again. And likewise, if you find yourself telling yourself stories about other people, judging other people, making them more important or less important, um, telling yourself a story like, he doesn't love me. um, Again, that means you've lost a deep ground in yourself. And of course, if you believe these stories, every one of the stories is going to arouse some kind of emotion, He doesn't love me. Is going to make you angry or deeply sad. You know, I'm better than you. Kind of a story about yourself is going to make you superior and inflated, or I'm not good enough. It's going to make you in you know deflated and depressed. So when you're not in presence, those in me and you stories are going on all the time. You don't even know you're in them, and all the me and you stories have to be justified by a memory. So if you're going to be angry at someone today. You're going to justify it by going into the past and remember something that happened either earlier with that person or much earlier with your parents or siblings or teachers. So the past will become, you'll select memories from this incredible ground of memory that nobody can access all of it. You access it only to justify today's anger, today's worry, today's fear, this moment's reaction. And out of that past, you'll build a future. So those four places, stories about yourself, stories about others, me stories, you stories, being in the past, believing the stories about the past, using them to justify your identity, your reaction, your anger, and so forth, and projecting into the future based on the things you've lived before and hoping for a better past or fearing a worst past. In other words, a person that's not in the seat of themselves, in the center, in presence, doesn't have a future. They have only imaginings based on the past. And so the mandala says, come home, start again, recognize what your mind's doing, step away from the emotions, this breath, breathe out, relax, be here.
0: Mm, That's so beautiful, Richard. I'm wondering like how breath and also when you when you say awareness, like can you describe that to people? Like what does that actually mean? Maybe you can give us an example of how you have recently used the mandala of being in like a story that you were telling yourself or perhaps a story that you can, you know, pull from, from some of the people that you've worked with.
1: Yeah. Well... First of all, awareness and consciousness are the same word in, in all the Latin-based languages. Uh, English, German, and other languages allow you to, to distinguish consciousness from awareness. I'm not going to go into that, but essentially awareness is and consciousness are a capacity to be related to something, to touch something, to turn You turn your attention toward a feeling, and instead of identifying and losing yourself in the feeling, realize I have this feeling, and I can relate to this feeling. I have awareness about this feeling, consciousness about this feeling, Um, and the same thing with thoughts. So that's the first part of your question: like, what is awareness? What is consciousness? It's a relating. It's it's a and when you're in presence, you're in that state of awake, alert. you know, relating. And you're not the victim of your thinking. You have thoughts, but you're aware of your thoughts. It means you're more than your thoughts. So if you have a belief, a political belief, and you won't change it, that means you're in a structure of me, an identity, a self-system that's inflexible. Because awareness of your thoughts means you can change your thoughts, relax your thoughts, and breath is the way you take awareness, you practice awareness, and you ground it in the present moment in your body. In other words, awareness is a very vague thing. Um, For example, right now, anyone who's listening to us can can take hold of where they're sitting and grip it with their hand, and they'll immediately be aware that A, they decided to do that, and B, they can feel the strength of their grip. Uh, and there's a sensation there in their hand that they're aware of. The same thing when you have fear. It's a sensation in your body that you're aware of. But how do you actually meet fear? You have to anchor that awareness so it gets so strong in the present moment, and that's where the breath comes in. You have to teach yourself to anchor in the breath. Because think of this, from the moment of birth, you took a breath. And you've been breathing ever since? When you were the most unhappy you were breathing, what if in those moments of unhappiness you turned your awareness, your consciousness, toward the ever-present sensation of breathing in your body, and you stayed with that sensation, and you didn't lose yourself in thinking? You didn't lose yourself in running away or reacting to some feeling? Then, because you have the anchor with your breath in your body, those thoughts, those stories, and all those emotions will gradually settle. The mind is like a, a cup of muddy water. If you don't stir it, it, it settles, it gets clear. Um, and when it gets clear, then you're in a state of presence, and then you discover what you really feel. And that's where you start to do the, the deep healing work. So the first step with breath is to quiet your mind, and the second step is to learn to journey into the feelings that have been chasing you all your life. And so this this is the work. If you want to give an an example, a a simple example, I worked with a woman a few weeks ago in a retreat, eight-day retreat in France, and the, the belief she came up with was about a job that she lives in and she, she was telling herself that I'm wasting my life in this job. So I asked her, well, okay, when you believe this. Uh, so I called wasting your life, my life in this job. I am wasting, it, it, it's both about herself and it's about the job. So it's in that me, you aspect of the mandala. So what does that arouse in her? What, it, it arouses despair in her, defeat, you know, and misery. And a sense of failure, and so in in our work, I said, okay. So now, what would it be like to step into this present moment with the mandala laid out as a, a kind of a design, like a clock on the floor? I said, step into the present moment and imagine you actually never had this thought at work. You never had the thought, "I'm wasting my life." How would you be? And she said, oh. Oh, well, I I would be much more relaxed. I said, okay, how would your body feel? Yeah, well, more relaxed, more content. I said, what would happen to the way you relate to people around you? How do you relate when you're telling yourself, I'm wasting my life here? She says, oh, I'm closed. I, I don't connect with people. I You know, I I want to just get out of there. There's a few people I like, but, you know, it's... And I said, well, now, if you aren't telling the story, if this is a thought experiment to imagine that you're you're not believing I am wasting my life. Um, she did that thought experiment and she said, well, of course, I'd be much more open. So we kept working. We worked and reinforced it in, in many ways, which you can read about very clearly in Inside Out Healing. Uh, and since you've read the book, you have a good sense of how how much it can teach
0: someone. Yes, yeah. That's so powerful. I mean, I think so many of us are just caught in these like stories that we tell ourselves that just get like ingrained in our like identity and like self-concept. And so it's just so interesting, um, you know, for some people, like what stories they hold on to. And, and I'm always uh, so curious, like, is the emotion, does the emotion come first and then the story comes after? Does the story come and then the emotion, you know, what's, and I think you speak about the difference between emotions and feelings in your book. Um, so could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, thank you. This is super important. You can say there, there are basically two modes of consciousness. Uh, a baby has all of them kind of merged into one. But by the time we're eight or nine years old, now we have thinking and we have sensation or feeling. In Buddhism, in Buddha, Buddha's teaching, when we bring ourselves through our breath or through a practice into the present moment, the mind will stop in terms of any mental activity. There'll just be consciousness, but there'll also be sounds and sensations and perceptions. He says, basically, consciousness for a human being when they're fully in the present moment is sensation. Okay, now sensation's a big category. It's aches and pains, it's old physical wounds from, from illness or medis- medical intervention surgery. There's also that whole category of feeling, what happens when you see a sunrise. What happens when you're, you know, you, you've had a loss, a child's died, I mean, and you're, you're you're feeling profound grief, and and then there is a category I call emotions. Emotions are created specifically by thoughts, and they they loop. It's so you can't say that the emotion comes first, and then comes the story, the belief. The story about me, the story about the past, the story about some other person that you're judging. And In the example, you know, I'm wasting my life in this job. That The emotion of despair is simultaneous with the story. It's a loop. I call it mental-emotional looping. So that isn't feeling. That's a kind of a, a emotional arousal in the body. So anger, for example, is impossible without judgments and thoughts. And the minute the judgments and thoughts stop, the anger stops. So the anger doesn't want to stop, so it creates new judgments and new, new ways of blaming someone or, or being disappointed in yourself. Or it, so it loops and loops and loops. So that's why you have to first learn to quiet the mind. With feeling, it's an entirely different thing. With sensation, it's a t- You have to learn to touch these things with a, a lot of love and kindness. You have you have to train yourself to be in relationship with your feelings with love and kindness. Because all the feelings you neglect will stimulate the thoughts that create emotions. When whenever a person finds themselves thinking something over and over again, it means they're not turning deep enough in themselves toward a feeling that's exciting those a deeper sensation maybe a wound from childhood maybe you know a, abandonment issues and the sensation of confusion or loss or hopelessness you had as a child those feelings are imprinted those sensations are imprinted and when we become conscious enough to turn toward them and work with them in the ways I describe in my work and teach people all the time, then gradually, every time you see yourself thinking too much, you know, oh, there's a feeling I'm neglecting. And you turn your awareness and your breath inward, find that feeling, and then you relax. You touch the feeling, you teach yourself to bring love and compassion to that feeling. And love and compassion, you say, "What do they mean?" But everybody knows what they mean in a certain way not not the way the dictionary will define them, but you know what it means to turn a loving gaze or a loving touch to a child or a friend. You know what it means to listen with your heart open with love. You just don't know how to touch your fear or your loneliness or you know your 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 sense of 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 helplessness and you don't know how to touch those in yourself with love and compassion, so that's that's the deep fundamental work of healing. But you don't do that till the emotions stop, because the emotions are basically, you know, the thinking and emotions are protections against deeper feeling. You you never even become a human being if you're just living in thinking and emotions. Then you're just you're just angry one minute. Exasperated the next minute, impatient the next minute, full of hope the next minute, despair the next. You're just <laughs> going around all over the place. You just you're you're just a roller coaster of misery. And you're so used to it, you think that's who you are.
0: So I want to dig into this because I think um, the idea of like feeling your feelings is something so many of us were taught not to do growing up. I feel like, you know, my parents' generation, it feels like so many of my friends have said this to me too, that when they were growing up, they were it was really like a practice to not go down these like kind of darker feelings and to just avoid them or to suppress them. Um, you know, and I think a lot of us were sort of disciplined whenever we had negative emotions. Um, and so, so it's, it's been an interesting practice as an adult to then sit in our feelings and to just sort of sit in like all the spectrum of what those feelings feel like in our body for people that are listening, who maybe are new to this practice, would it be, I feel like it would be interesting to sort of walk through uh, an exercise of feeling our feelings. Like we can just pick one. I'm sure all of us have sure. things like fear, uh, like you mentioned, or worthiness, um, abandonment, loneliness. But I think fear is a pretty universal <laughs> feeling. So yes, well,
1: this is what I do. This is what my wife do does when we we guide individuals. Since COVID, a lot of that happens on Zoom, but this is this is what we teach people in our retreats. But there are many pieces. The simplest basic piece is you have to decide that you're going to relate to the feeling of fear instead of be a victim of the feeling of fear. You have to decide, I am aware of this fear. I have my fear. My fear doesn't have me. And that, you see, I... I'm aware I'm angry. That means I can find the story I'm telling myself, I can relax, release with my breathing, and my anger will subside. Then maybe what's under my anger, what my anger was protecting me from was fear, or maybe helplessness, powerlessness. Or maybe the kind of impotent fury a child feels, because no matter what it does, somehow it it doesn't get the kind of response on mirroring it, it, it needs. When your parents tell you, don't feel your feelings, they're basically saying, live your life from a plan and don't let any feeling get in the way of your plan. The problem is, mankind, humankind, have been running away from fear, running away from aloneness forever and trying to be safe but as long as you don't have a safe relationship with fear in yourself you'll never be safe there'll never be enough laws there'll never be enough money there'll never be the, the right woman or the right man you know if you don't have safety in you you'll destroy your relationships they'll, they'll they'll lose life you'll end up fighting 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 and it's basically your unsafe self fighting with the other person's unsafe self and neither of you are turning toward this frightened, unsafe place inside of you. So, you know, to try to do it as an exercise basically would take more time, I think, than you want to do. What you would do is you'd sit down and say, I'm going to get into the center of the mandala, so read my book. Um, I'm not just selling that book. Read that book. It's going to change your life in ways you can't believe, maybe more than any spiritual book you've ever read any psychological or self-help book you've ever read. So just, just look at it, just look at it, read it, because you're going to need to sit down, take your seat in the, in the presence that we started this conversation about, in the presence. Breathe, turn your awareness into your body, breathe, and you're going to breathe toward the fear. And the fear is your teacher. Let me say that again. The fear is your teacher and until you understand how to touch it with love and compassion it will beat you it will chase you to making more money it will chase you to trying to have more likes on the internet it will chase you into hiding and withdrawing it'll keep you from living your true dreams or you'll be using fear to motivate all of your drive to be successful and you know you'll be a living lie The fear will be your truth. So you have to turn and decide I'm going to let, I'm going to learn to let this, this fear is going to teach me love and compassion with the fear itself. And that means it's going to transform you. Fear becomes your teacher of transformation. And what it leads you to, and this is astonishing, when you turn and you start to bring love and compassion to fear, fear will eventually. You may have to do this 10,000 times. You may. I mean, I certainly think I have. Um, But then because of what I've done and where I am, I emanate something that makes people so, so much safer that they can move with fear so much faster. So when you do your work on your fear, you help everybody around you. Um, But if you keep trying to be safe with success, with popularity, with more degrees, with more money, with the right girl or the right guy, with you know, you 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 don't have a life yet. You're just running from fear, and the whole of human, you know, there's eight billion billion of us. How many of us have actually found that fear has led us into infinite love? That fear has been the teacher that love wanted us to have, um, ally for our love. Think about it. If you're in a relationship. That relationship is going to grow into deeper and deeper intimacy only if you can face your fear. Not if you say, he has to change so I don't feel the fear, or I have to change. And it, it's going to be, I'm going to start to make my peace. I'm going to find love and compassion for the fear, for the emptiness, for the loneliness.
0: Mm.
1: I, as far as my th- stories, I I have so deeply integrated this over 45 years that I don't have stories that create emotions in me. I mean, if I do, they're milliseconds long. It's like I'm at the airport and I find out my flight is now delayed for seven hours, which is what happened to me a week ago on Monday. And I go, oh, shit. And then I stop. Okay. Now what's the opportunity?
0: (laughs) Yeah, walk us... Walk us through, what's the next, what do you, how do you kind of regulate the you know, moments like that?
1: There's only the now, right? I may be very tired, so that makes me more vulnerable to the negative stories or the reactive stories, right? So what did I do? You know, I, 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 I actually had a ticket that allowed me to go to a lounge and in the lounge I was able to get a place to lie down. And that's why I traveled internationally with a ticket that will allow me to use a lounge. Um, and, uh, so I had that advantage, but I've had many situations where I was traveling domestically and stuck in an airport for five or six hours. So I just sit down, you know, if I'm hungry, I go and find some food. I usually always travel with some food. Um, I can distract myself with uh, reading or something like that. And that's a, that's a useful thing to do to fill the time. But mostly, you know, I resource myself by simply being quiet. And you can be quiet anywhere. It's very challenging in airports. They're not only physically noisy, they're psychically noisy. Um, they're psychically noisy because almost no real relationship is going on. People are always on their way somewhere. They're always moving too fast or too slow. They're always in their separate space. It's a very peculiar Place airports, especially if you're sensitive.
0: (laughs) Say more about that, Richard. That's such an interesting point. Like, there's no real relationship happening. So, what what do you think it takes to be pro pro relational? um, You know, between two people. You talk about how so many people are running from their fear, and so they're not living their life. I would say, I would argue that the majority of people are doing that. um, At least in the West, it feels like that. There's just so much running. Um, so yeah, how you know, how can we cultivate really powerful, nourishing, connected relationships, first with ourselves and then with others?
1: Uh, such a such a beautiful question. The way you cultivate it is you, you have to decide if I'm going to grow in consciousness or awareness, what am I growing in service to? For example, people fall in love. And while they're in love, they project all kinds of good stories on the other person. But lurking inside of them are the unhealed wounds, and eventually every relationship has to face those. If two people look at each other and say, okay, we had our children, now we're in our relationship to heal, to create, to not a, to, to make love, to build love, how do we do that? Then you have to say, okay, well, I will do my inner work in order to become more loving, you'll do your inner work to become more loving, and we'll sit down with each other, and we'll meet in the love of love. My wife and I, um, we didn't fall in love. We were, we were introduced, we, we were like very intermittent acquaintances who appreciated each other. We could go for a walk or have a meal three every three months, six months. One night she had a vision dream, woke her up. Powerful, gigantic energy. It started with an image of the two of us sitting side by side, then energy moving between our hearts, and then boom—the energy erupted and went everywhere. And a couple of days later, I called her and invited her for dinner. She said it was six months since I'd previously called her. Uh, it could have been—I don't—I don't remember. I was—I was—I was in that phase of my life where I was a single man learning to truly. Turn and face, and be comfortable with aloneness and loneliness, and, and get to be a good cook. At least take care of myself well. Um, so when we did, when when we did get together, she said, "I had this dream. Can I tell you?" And she told it to me. The moment she told it to me, the energy of her dream moved between us. And and in that moment, I asked myself, "Is this someone?" I can take the journey of loving love with. Not is this someone I can love? Is this someone I can fall in love with? Is this someone who will love me? No, I asked, is this someone I can take the journey of loving love with? And she said, in her own way within herself, is this a person where our relationship can lift us to God? And we both had a yes, just a deep yes. And so when you say to me, you know, it's it's the moment you realize that you're here on planet Earth to learn to love, and be loved, and that fear is going to be your teacher, because wherever you fear this fear, you'll close your heart and become self interested, and and that will poison your relationships. It'll poison your marriage. It'll poison your relationship with your children. It poisons your relationship with yourself. So, you have to decide. Am I actually going to turn toward these feelings with love and compassion? Am I going to become a disciple of love? Now Jesus said, "God is love." Jesus was a Hebrew. They had a god that said, "I am the only god." You have to, you know, I'm a jealous god. You have to love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And and um, Jesus said, "No." your first your first responsibility is not to love God. the first commandment is to love one another and God is love so God, Jesus was a God changer you know I mean there are thousands and thousands of years of the Hebrew religion before Jesus, but he was a God changer then the religion is another thing. it was created by a different man years later um, paul so the but the point is we now have a sense that if God is love, that means that the beginning and end of everything is love. And the deepest states of realization are love. The Dalai Lama says his religion is limitless love and compassion. The word religion from Latin religio means to bind back. In order to go forward, you have to bind yourself to some higher principle, not power. Fear wants you to be successful, safe, hide, withdraw, you know, make more money, become this, become that. Fear-driven people are obvious, you know. But a person who s- says, "No, love is my God," they they they're the ones that take the journey of k- learning how they close their hearts. The the journey of what we're talking about here, um, and that's a very long answer <laughs> to
0: it. But it's love
1: f- it. it's fundamental. You see, for me. I watched my stories because they might close my heart, you know. And once I w- once I understood the patterns, the deeper patterns of the ego structure, uh, the me structure in Richard, this one, the, the Richard ego self, the self system that I too, like everyone else, had to create by eight or nine years old. Then the stories stopped. And and so you're talking to me, but I woke up when I was. 30 years old, and that's over 45 years ago. And I, I have been living a practice and understanding a practice and teaching a practice and a path and learning the practices. I taught it because it had awakened in me. But that didn't mean I could understand it or teach it. I had to learn how to speak it and turn it into a moment-by-moment way of living. and. Of the simple unspoken truth about so called enlightenment or about actual enlightenment, um, fundamental realization, the kind of experience I had at the age of 30, is that the ego continues. And you have to then become in service to love, you digest your ego until your ego becomes an ally of your journey of consciousness instead of the problem. So when you hear some of the traditions that have been misunderstood, misinterpreted, saying you have to kill the ego or eliminate the ego, they mean egotism. You, you, you don't kill the ego. You, 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 with love and compassion, you stop giving energy to the patterns of your self-system at that egotistical level that are... That are um, couldn't stop love, close your heart to love, make yourself involved and self-important at the expense of love.
0: Wow, that's, that's powerful. I think a lot of people struggle with that, you know, what to do with their ego and, um, and, and I love that you say that this is kind of like a, a lifelong, you know, continuation, right? The ego continues, even if you've done the work, even if you have, quote unquote, reached a level of, you know, awareness and enlightenment. Uh, Richard, I want to talk a little bit about your kind of early career in medicine um, and leaving the world of medicine to move into the space. You know, why did you decide to make that shift? And can you talk to us about what happened?
1: Yeah. Who are you going to be when you grow up? (laughs) (laughs) I guess, you know, my mom was a nurse. So doctors were respected. My dad was a school teacher. It was the Vietnam War. I didn't know about business. I didn't know about law. Um, I didn't want to go to war. So I, you know, I went to college, and from college, I went to medical school. I I, I knew that it wasn't my true calling. Um, I knew that from the get-go. Uh, I also. You know, I, I struggled with that. and it's where I first started doing therapy. My, my very first steps in trying to examine myself in th- in, through psychological-based therapy were when I was in medical school. Um, what I think about it is that from the age of 21 to the, about the age of 29, I needed a cocoon. Some part of my soul that I didn't understand had to evolve in a in a safe place that that was good for me, and a safe place that was good for me was to use my mind in the wonderful ways medicine trains you to do uh, to be in service to helping ease suffering in other people, which medicine is so fundamentally about when it's done properly and done with heart um, but when I woke up when I was Brought to a new consciousness. I mean, radically, profoundly changed. Um, I had already—I already knew that I was—I I was not going to continue in medicine. I had actually taken a leave of absence, thinking I'd go back in six months, thinking, well, oh, I'll just travel the world or do something like that." And I never went back because it was my cocoon. It, and I often say to, to young people who are not ready to leap into, you know, not just into the spiritual world, you, you need a cocoon before you're ready to really be an entrepreneur. Now, some of these, you know, web-based, code-based, you know, you know, tech things like Zuckerberg did as a Harvard student, um, or or Bill Gates and his partner did basically it's college students and high school students, those are, those are forms of such basic rationality. Um, they're zeros and ones. They're um, highly complex. And the fact that they could turn them into the things we're using right now to communicate at a distance so sophisticatedly um, is wonderful. But if you can truly make a difference in the world, if you're going to truly grow your gifts, If you're going to truly start to become an expression of those gifts, which is a big part of what the meaning of life is about, and if those gifts are going to be in service to sanity, that's a long, long evolving process. And you may have to apprentice in a cocoon type place in a business for three years, five years, 10 years. You may apprentice as a mother with four children. My wife, Kathy, has three daughters and co- took on the co-parenting of her second husband's three children from the previous marriage. And then for 10 years, she shared parenting with her ex-husband's wife and, and had solo parenting of her three. Now, I won't call that, that. thats a kind of cocoon. In that cocoon, she also became a spiritual seeker. But it, she, she's the most grounded and expansive person I know. In that sense, so my path, the cocoon of medicine. She was in business. She was working for corporate America. Um, Then she became a mom. I woke up and became one of these rare things, which is a spiritual teacher out of your own experience, as opposed to evolving out of a Buddhist or some other kind of tradition. Um, And and um, when we met, or and now meet. These last seven years, um, it's that's a that's the sum total of everything we've both lived, and we're so so different in the way we arrived. She says she wasn't disassembled by a radical awakening, as mine was rather violent. I I write a little bit about it in the books, but I was a doctor, so I knew I wasn't insane. I knew it wasn't seizures. I knew it wasn't, and I found a way through. Uh, she said, "She, you know, she was broken down by life, and so you know, life, life can wake you up in so many ways. But you need, you need to do all the things I'm talking about. And the thing is, it's already inbuilt in you. the The, the primary luminosity that awakens that was in a child, but not, they don't know it." that we all lose when we become self-systems, this thing called me that walks around in a me, you, past, future world, and the potential to wake up and start to become a disciple of love and stop stirring up your mind and creating endless mental-emotional looping, that's built into you. You're, you need an ego awareness so it can start to become a servant of this divine consciousness that's in everyone. doesn't wake up in everyone but it's in everyone.
0: Mm. I love that. And I love that there's so many paths to the enlightenment piece, right? Like just hearing your story of what is a cocoon for one person might not be a cocoon for another and needing that space for the transformation and the alchemy, I think is is really interesting. Um, so mm-hmm. Richard, I'd love to talk a little bit about what has changed in the last 10 years since you started working in this space and also how your point of view may have evolved since the pandemic
1: well remember i stepped into this space and created a way to share a living path of of, of awakening uh, 45 years ago 46 years ago almost so in the last 10 years what i've seen is the explosion of yoga in a in a very um watered down form but also in in with more substance also um as a popular movement everywhere 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 in the world and now mindfulness as well so mindfulness practice is 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 a very 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 good healthy important first step it it basically teaches you to do what i'm talking about it teaches you how to uh have your thoughts have your stories but not be the victim of your thoughts and so it te- it teaches you how to start to journey with the the feeling or emotional environment inside of you as well as with other kinds of sensations in your body and those pieces when but even as as the, the man um Who wrote the uh, the book Wherever You Go, There I Am? I can't think of his name. One of basically the founder in the West of the mindfulness movement. He said this: uh, Mindfulness will make you a better assassin. It can make you a better uh, ruthless entrepreneur. Maybe a better ruthless lawyer. Mindfulness doesn't have heart intrinsically. Okay, you have to decide whether your yoga practice is about heart or about training your body. I know a very well known yoga teacher. Woman who tells me, "Ah, most of the people, most of the women just want a yoga butt." <laughs> and I, I i know i know many high up yoga teachers, um, and I've taught at yoga ashrams, uh, but it's you have to it, 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 yoga postures, hatha yoga, those things, they are not about flexibility. Uh, the, the, the women who have hip replacements are the, at the earliest are the women that were yoga teachers who did too much yoga. Oh, wow. um, that's a fact. Um, you, people overstretch, they do all kinds of damage. The point is, can you be in your body and take it to a a, new, a very subtle new threshold, not pain, and relax and relax and relax. And then when the body relaxes, can you move the body? Ever so more. So that's Hatha Yoga, the Jnana Yoga. Can you watch your thoughts? Can you become a disciple of your thoughts, what they do to you, and release your thoughts? Mindfulness is is not a, a body practice, it's a almost a pure sitting practice, but it's about sitting. With awareness, consciousness in the body, these things have just blown, spread everywhere in the last ten years, and that's a good thing. Um, it's longer than ten years, but Eckhart Tolle's tremendously successful book, "The Power of Now," um, that too has has been very, very influential in this this space. So. I have no doubt, if I hear more about your story, that somewhere along the line, something touched you, either through yoga, through mindfulness, through meditation, or through suffering that took you down this path, or a combination of all of those things. In the last 10 years, technology has made it possible for you and I to do what we're doing. Uh, And COVID simply made it that instead of me traveling all over the world... Uh, In fact, I just this summer decided to stop since 1989 every summer to Europe except COVID-2020. I'm not going to make those kinds of trips anymore. Um, But it means that I work with private clients literally from all over the world, and I use Zoom. Um, And Zoom can be a very powerful tool for connecting. It's no substitute for in-person actual retreats. It's not. just like you practicing an hour or two every day of your vipassana is no substitute for going and sitting ten days of vipassana, um, but but even vipassana needs heart. Even vipassana, which is an offshoot of Buddhist teaching, um, an insight teaching, which is you know has really taken hold of the mindfulness process and trained a lot of mindfulness teachers very well. Um, Unless you all of it becomes truly to love, love, it misses the mark.
0: Mm. Wow, so powerful, Richard. I'm so so happy we're having this conversation because I think it's mm. so easy to get off track and like remember what all these practices of turning inward are about, just to return back to this place of love. And I think for so many people, yes, the,
1: as my wife says, the rubber meets the road in relationship.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Okay. You, sorry to interrupt you.
0: Oh yeah. No. No worries. It's so funny because like I remember. I think some people are confused about relationships in general because there's this kind of desire for self actualization and knowing yourself really well and spending time doing inner work. And then um, I remember asking Esther Perel that question. I said, you know, in a society where we're like we're sort of moving towards a desire for personal growth and um, an inner understanding of self. Um, How do you have the space for that when you're in a relationship? And then she responds with, well, what better way to know yourself than through the eyes of another? And I think it's so important that we continue to surround ourselves with people that show us all the places that we're, you know, that we don't. Um, understand that we might judge in in another that that hasn't been worked out within ourselves, like everything is really about the self, but through the eyes of others. So, I I think that's right.
1: And and every relationship has a self now. uh, We, Kathy and I, and it's not original language, we call that a third consciousness. Um, there's you and I talking right now, and we're talking for a purpose this podcast that you've created brings a really important message to a lot of people but that means you and I have to connect and we are you know and you're trained to as an interviewer you're you're really good you have lovely lovely voice i like <laughs> you know i just like meeting you this way and because we're both in service to the person people who are listening so first point realization enlightenment inner work is not an end in itself. It just simply prepares you to live more and more in third consciousness where one plus one is at least three. I had a just a half an hour this before you and I got together with clients and I've been teaching couples how to live in third consciousness. What happens is each person thinks of their own spiritual journey as an individualistic thing. But the relationship wants each of you to take your spiritual journey, so that the relationship can lead you into infinite intimacy. All right, Mm. the first part of life, you can say making love is about having children, but later in life, which is a whole lot of the people that are listening to us, you know, with maybe multiple, you know, second and third marriages and so forth, or later in life in long-term marriages, it's about making love, and the sexual part of that can be better. And better and better than it ever was before, because the heart connection the the, the living presence, this intelligence that is your relational third is going deep is taking you deeper and deeper so the relate every relationship wants to bridge the differences between two people I don't care what context it's in son and daughter, mother and father, you and someone at work that that relationship if the minute you realize this relationship is in service not only to the organization we might work for and be employed by, but it's in service right now to a potential of consciousness that we can each share and support in each other. Okay, And then once you do that, every relationship becomes a living adventure. Now, there are some people that simply are so self-involved they live. They don't have an awareness of their thoughts. They are the, the victims of their thoughts. They don't have an awareness of their emotions. They believe in their emotions and the thoughts that create their emotions, and they are the victims of their emotions and thoughts. Some people are the victims of their feelings. They have never learned that they can have a transformational and healing relationship, even with the deepest grief, the deepest loss, the deepest wounds from childhood. I mean, with everything. But, but you need help sometimes, and you need not to have made it worse, you know, with by really destroying yourself over the years because of the early pain. But most people in relationship have the capacity to grow in limitless intimacy the minute you realize that the relationship wants to lead you to that. And then you start thinking, not, is my practice, my, you know, my meditation, my yoga... For me, it's about how does it serve this relationship? How does it serve my relationship to everyone? Enlightenment is not an end in itself. It's just the beginning of a new way of serving something that is true in everyone and helping them awaken to it.
0: Yeah. Wow. So powerful. I'm just reflecting on a lot of things that you just said. Um Richard, we are unfortunately coming to time, uh, but I have so many more questions. <laughs> I'm excited that I'm going to be in person at your next retreat. <laughs> so Wonderful. That's going to be so lovely. Uh, just to to kind of wrap this up, what sort of things have surprised you the most while you've been on this journey? You've worked with so many people. Obviously, you've been in the space for 45 plus years, so you have a lot of data points. Um, you know, looking back, like what's what surprised you?
1: The fundamental goodness in most people, that if you find the right way to, to create a safe environment, everyone wants to take the risk and grow. That side by side with the tenacious nature of the ego structure that's been built to survive the deep wounding of childhood. We, you know, we're changing that. Um, we, we understand just how essential those first Few years of life are the first seven years of life are in terms of whether people will be healthy or not healthy, um, and do do good or less good in the world going forward. Uh, what, but the tenacious nature of fear, and and the people, and and how many people are just running from fear. Um, it doesn't surprise me. But when I watched the. the the, the politicization of politicization of the uh, vaccines when when I when I've watched the intensification of polarization in the political sphere it's as if humanity wants to create more misery so that that kind of perversity um, this perversity of of not grounding your consciousness in service to love um, I didn't realize how, how violent it could be, how pern- pernicious it could be. And right now, the, 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 the fastest growing, let's call it religion, is, is um, this QAnon and these absolutely bizarre stories that have no basis whatsoever in reality, yet the mind, the intellect, the mind mental emotional looping doesn't need reality; it just needs the security of something to believe in, and that, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't have to be in service to love. That can that becomes in service to me and mine, with an intensity and and an irrationality that is very distressing. I I never thought that you know democracy in the United States was something that was going to live a long time. Um, but to watch it disintegrating or potentially disintegrating around us, while at the same time there's an explosion of mindfulness and yoga and heartfulness and and people who still have an act, uh, an actual faith, faith grounded in love, and who are developing self awareness practices. Um, these things are they're all evolving at the same time, and and um, mm. it's a very slow evolution. So the surprise is how miserable we can make ourselves, as, as my wife Kathy says, I guess more suffering needed. Um, and the, the just as tenacious and what will always ultimately win is that essential luminosity within you. The light always wins. Consciousness wins over denial of consciousness. Slowly. Very so, so slowly, you'll suffer for forty years, and then one day you'll maybe ask for help, maybe you won't. maybe your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But most people, the moment they turn toward it and ask for help, they start growing, and we are capable of infinite growth that's And, and of my very experience of, of my life of forty five years and the sheer dimension of joy in my body a joy. It's like a body of joy and of love that rarely gets shaken except in long airport days when I'm <laughs> tired. But that's just a, a receding of the sensation. It's its not a corruption of my heart. It's not an ugliness. That never comes anymore in any way. And that, I didn't know that I would come to such a state of joy. I'm 75. I hope to be around for a while. I never knew that I could transmit. Such a simple state of love and joy and path um, and so in 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 that sense I'm a profound optimist about the potential in people mm, wow um, because because I've lived it
0: amazing richard that's so that's uh, so inspiring I think all of us sort of wish that we could spend our days living fully in joy and uh, it's obvious that you've you've sat in your in your own inner world enough to, to be able to tap into that and to tap into and become an embodiment really of love. So I love that about you. Uh, our mutual friend, Paula had mentioned that you were uh, a one of a kind, um, spiritual teacher. And, you know, after reading your book and getting to know your work, I completely agree with her (laughs) and I'm excited for more. Yes. Um, So where can people find you, Richard? Where can they find your books? Where can they find your retreats or how can they work with you? It's easy to find me. It's my name.
1: www.richardmoss.com goes to my website. And in the website, you find out about me, you find out about the work my wife and I offer together. See, we made a commitment once we started down this path that we would actually teach out of our third. Um, Kathy sat side by side with me now for the last close to four years. Um uh, She'd never sat in front of led a letter retreat in her life. she would led, you know, done a lot of work with private clients and small groups teaching meditation, but suddenly she was in front of transformational retreats side by side with me and it took enormous courage on her point. So you find out about our retreats, you find out somewhat more about her, one of these days she'll get herself a website, <laughs> um, and how to work with us privately on Zoom or how to come be here in private retreat. We we work with couples. We love that um, because couples. You know, working with couples is the way to accelerate the potential for spiritual evolution in individuals. Those that are in a, a that want their relationship to lead them to infinite love um, become carriers of that love much faster than if you just work by yourself.
0: Mm. Amen. I love it. So
1: that. <laughs> all of that is there and, and on the website easy for people to find. And of course then they can hear about my books and jo- join my audio blog or you know get my all they have to do is go to the website and click on receive the newsletter and the newsletter is an audio blog it's a teaching
0: mm. comes
1: out about once a month so I don't bombard people.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Yes. And uh, for those listening, you can find Richard Moss's books on Amazon and wherever, I guess, books are sold. Uh, and again, like there's so many books that he's written. So check them out. It's going to be amazing. And thank you again, Richard, for your time. This was so lovely. And I feel very centered and at peace after this conversation. So I feel your your resonance and spirit. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Yasmin. I've re- Yasmin, how do I you pronounce it? Yeah,
0: it's Yasmin, but either way is fine.
1: I'm looking forward to meeting you. I want to find out who's behind that name <laughs> and voice.
0: <laughs> yes, awesome. Well, I'm very excited, and uh, just to wrap this up. So, for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about connecting with your true self through presence with Richard Moss, and you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.